From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, the U.S. Farm Bill is a package of legislation that gets passed approximately every five years, and it more or less shapes the landscape of American agriculture. It expired at the end of last year, and the congressional clock is ticking as the ag industry watches to see if a new farm bill is doable this session. We'll get local reaction to the farm bill delay from Farm and Country's Rosie Starr, who spoke to Brent Habig at Two Creek Farm in Pennsylvania. If one person is struggling with mental illness, the entire family is struggling. Families need support. And NAMI of Northeast Pennsylvania offers support for those who have loved ones with mental conditions. We will speak to the coordinator of community outreach, plus WorkShift Live and culture reporter Valerie Manzi with a new art exhibition at CAS. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in a case that could reshape the future of the Internet. As NPR's Kerry Johnson reports, justices will be examining laws in Florida and Texas that compel big social media companies to carry posts they find objectionable. Texas and Florida passed the laws after social media platforms blocked former President Donald Trump following the Capitol riot in 2021. The state laws prevent big social media companies from banning users based on their political viewpoints. Republican leaders there say the sites have been silencing conservative ideas. Lawyers for the social media Media platforms say the laws violate decades of First Amendment precedent and could expose users to messages that are hateful, violent, or unsafe. Legal experts say if the justices uphold the sweeping state laws, it could end content moderation as we know it, changing the shape of modern social media. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The impeachment process against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas could move to the Senate this week. The impeachment articles must be walked over to the Senate by managers from the House. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is campaigning in Michigan ahead of tomorrow's primary election. She has yet to win a single contest. Former President Donald Trump has won each event in which he has competed. President Biden is also seeking Democratic votes in Michigan, but he's facing difficulty, too. NPR's Elena Moore says Arab-American Democrats are actively working to oppose him on the primary ballot because of his support for Israel in the Gaza war. It was started largely by younger Arab and Muslim American organizers in Dearborn who oppose Biden's handling of Israel's war in Gaza. And the goal is really to get folks to write in uncommitted on the ballot as a form of a protest vote. You know, organizers tell me this campaign was kind of You know, it's grown beyond just the Arab and Muslim communities here in southeast Michigan, and it's really about changing Biden's policy. NPR's Elena Moore reporting. Stocks open higher this morning as business economists deliver an even rosier forecast for the coming year. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose about 70 points in early trading. Business economists are feeling better about the U.S. outlook than they were just a few months ago. A new survey by the National Association for Business Economics finds, on average, forecasters now expect stronger economic growth, lower unemployment, and tamer inflation than they were projecting in their last survey. More than three out of four economists surveyed think the U.S. will achieve a hope-for soft landing this year, avoiding a recession even as prices come under control. AT&T is offering a $5 credit to customers affected by last week's telephone outage. The phone company says a coding error was behind the problem, which left some cell phone users without service for hours. And stock in Domino's Pizza opened up this morning after the company delivered better-than-expected quarterly results. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. U.S. Air Force officials say a man has died after setting himself on fire yesterday outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. He has been identified as Aaron Bushnell, an active duty member of the U.S. Air Force. The action was apparently an act of protest against Israel's actions in Gaza. French President Emmanuel Macron is hosting European leaders in Paris today. It's at a summit meant to bolster support for Ukraine. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from Paris the gathering is sort of a wake-up call amid growing fears U.S. support for Ukraine could wane. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Polish President Andrzej Duda are among some 20 European heads of state and government at the summit with opening remarks via a video address from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Macron wrote on X, formerly Twitter, Battered and bruised, but still standing, Ukraine is fighting for itself, for its ideals, and for our Europe. 
but the EU has not even followed through on its pledge to provide a million rounds of ammunition to Ukraine. And with the U.S. Congress yet to pass a bill for Ukraine aid, Russia has an opportunity to gain the upper hand. French officials say the summit is intended to shake up the continent to what's happening and send a message to Russian President Vladimir Putin that he will not prevail in Ukraine. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. A federal judge in California holds a hearing today for an ex-FBI informant accused of spreading lies about President Biden. Alexander Smirnov was released on bond last week, but federal prosecutors claim Smirnov is a flight risk and they had him rearrested. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Covering programs ranging from crop insurance for farmers to healthy food access for low-income families, from beginning farmer training to support for sustainable farming practices, the U.S. Farm Bill sets the stage for our food and farm systems. The package of legislation is passed approximately every five years. It expired at the end of last year, and the current Farm Bill extension expired at the end of September this year. This morning, local reaction to the farm bill from Brett Habig at Two Creek Farm in Lakewood, Pennsylvania, who spoke to Farming Country's Rosie Starr at our Honesdale studio recently. Well, Rosie, as always, it's a pleasure to sit down with you. It's great to be right in the Cooperage where we have our farmer's market every Saturday. I'm running Two Creek Farm. We're a regenerative organic farm in Lakewood, PA. And yeah, happy to talk to you a little bit about the farm bill. That's a bit of a frustration for me as a farmer because I think in general it's not providing the support that I think small and local producers need to create a better food system. So happy to talk about that uh, in more detail. From what I understand, the Farm Bill's been around since the beginning of the 20th century. Let's talk about the purpose of the Farm Bill. Let's start with that or however you would like to begin this conversation. Well, first of all, I'm not an expert on the Farm Bill, but I am aware of how it's affecting me as a farmer because I do want to have an understanding of that. And I think... I'm also trying to remain active in reinforcing improvements to the farm bill as I can in a way that lead to a better food system, a food system that's better for consumers, that's better for local producers, and that's better for animals and the environment. I think there's enormous opportunities for improvement And the Farm Bill is just such a key anchor in the status quo of our food system and of our agricultural economy. So I need to have some knowledge of it, but I'm certainly not an expert. Let's talk about what it actually is. It's a piece of legislature. So every five years, the Farm Bill comes up. It's a federal piece of legislation. So it affects the entire country, and we are divided in many ways with agriculture. Not every state has the same agriculture, so that bill could not be perhaps comprehensive to the needs of Pennsylvania and New York. Let's just talk about our region here in the upper Delaware River Valley, the Catskills, northeast Pennsylvania. Let's share your knowledge on what this farm bill It's a 2023 Farm Bill. It's going to be signed in September of 2024. So what's on tap for this Farm Bill for Pennsylvania and farmers like you, small farmers? So it's a five-year cycle. It's a 2018 Farm Bill. It was due to be refreshed in 2023, and it was not. So it received what they call a continuing resolution that basically extends the Farm Bill for one more year. 
more or less in the same way that it was written in 2018. So we're sort of in a state of limbo where the status quo has been extended through 2024. And the hope is that within 2024, we prepare revisions and a new farm bill, and then that would go into effect by October 1st, 2025, and give us essentially a new farm bill. So that's sort of where it sits from the timing. So now is a key moment in time to reshape this bill for the next five years, assuming that Congress really has the bandwidth to, to do it, and it's not subjected to another continuing resolution. It's just kind of, at this moment, carried forward as it was without any significant changes. But basically, it has a few main components. The biggest component is SNAP, is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and that's about 80% of Farm Bill funding, almost a trillion dollars. The entire Farm Bill is over a trillion dollars. 80% of that goes to SNAP. That's providing food assistance to low-income individuals and families. The second major component is support for commodity producers. So it involves crop insurance and other subsidies to support large producers of corn, soy, cotton, and wheat. So it's essentially supporting U.S. production of agricultural commodities, both the sales of those commodities as well as the profit of those commodities. So it's a pretty attractive bill as far as large farmers are concerned who then would grow those commodities and benefit from support from the bill. There's a third component and a variety of other smaller components, but the third largest component is a conservation component, and that's about 4% of the budget. And that's something that I have benefited from as a farmer and is quite relevant locally here. There's a, a program within that called Equip, and many local farmers would be able to apply for funding to put in place new high tunnels or to put in place other sort of conservation infrastructure investments, paddock fencing, for example, to facilitate rotational grazing. So I think for us locally, the conservation funding is really the only component of direct relevance. SNAP is helpful for consumers, but as local farmers, that doesn't really deliver a large component of our sales. It's great that SNAP does allow purchases at farmer's markets. And so farmer's markets go at a great length to allow SNAP to be spent there. And, and I think that's positive, but it's a very small amount of our revenue as farmers at a farmer's market might be only several percent coming from that. And all the commodity subsidies don't really help us because there aren't commodity farmers locally. So, you know, that's kind of certainly not directly helping us, but the conservation funding, I think most larger local farms have probably benefited from in, in one way or another. It's pretty easy to receive support for helpful infrastructure. Who influences the decisions on what gets passed in the farm bill? Like any legislation, there's going to be a variety of hearings, but also lobbying and all kinds of influence going on. Looking at the bill objectively, it looks like it's written pretty much by big companies. It's really supporting big ag. It's supporting GMO crops, heavy use of fertilizers and chemicals. So all the agrochemical companies clearly benefit from this bill. Big ag in terms of machinery producers like John Deere, because these agricultural commodities are highly dependent on sophisticated machinery. And then the large traders and processing companies like uh, Cargill, you know, they'll benefit from this. So uh, clearly there's lobbying on behalf of 
large farmers themselves and the states that represent those large farmers. It's an important voice. Agribusiness, agrochemicals companies, looking at the bill, they have apparently a, a large voice in this. I know there's an urban agenda often through SNAP because the SNAP program is really helping both urban and rural families and, and individuals. So from that standpoint, that might be an, a component of this that's supported in non-producing geographies, for example, urban areas. So, you know, a variety of, I think, voices going on in the regenerative space where we sit. There's a big set of actors. There's a, a platform called Regenerate America that is a essentially an advocacy platform of Kiss the Ground, and they have a number of lobbying or advocacy interests that they're trying to build into a new farm bill. So there's a lot of voices, and you know how it nets out is obviously very complex. Yes, I, I understand there's a lot of lobbying going for the laborers, the farm workers to protect them from environmental hazards, also the issues with climate change, things like that. Do you think those those issues of racial justice in the food system, do you think they will surface and hold some weight in 2024 for the Farm Bill? Well, I think initiatives or priorities like that are very much needed. The Farm Bill, as it sits, it does help families who need food assistance. But as on the farming side, it's really supporting very well-capitalized and established industrial-scale farms. So there's very little support for new farmers, for small farmers. There's little support for, I guess, what you would consider to be social justice within the farming community. On that side of the equation, I know there's a number of initiatives to try to bring more diversity and equity across the base of U.S. farmers. How far that gets or how much funding that receives, I don't know. Environmentally, the bill as it stands is a train wreck. It's supporting the most damaging forms of agricultural production on the face of the earth. Monocrop commodity production using fossil fuels, glyphosate, heavy tillage. This is what it's supporting. Well, that's why our food system is contributing 30% to greenhouse gases. All of this lays the foundation for factory farming of animals because we have very cheap soy and corn that can be then fed to animals in a feedlot context. So it's also very much steering agricultural economics towards feedlot production of meat rather than grazing. All of this is very environmentally damaging. Then they have the so-called conservation pillar of this, which is 4% to kind of make it seem a little more green but the majority of this is really not green at all. It's supporting very dirty ways of producing food. So there's a lot more that could be done on that side, supporting grazing, supporting what they call specialty crops or what we think of as just growing normal food, fruit, vegetables, and meat, as opposed to supporting commodities that generally are not eaten. They're either used for biofuels or they're consumed by animals. So how can they actually support nutritious food and do that in a way that their subsidized could benefit uh, new and small producers? So there's enormous headroom here, but I think the challenge is there's so much political power in the status quo that I think we'll probably be making small changes around the margins. But there's still a lot of important work that can be done in that context. Well, that being said, is there still a chance that the individual 
can get involved to influence these decisions in a more environmentally friendly way? How does the individual voice their opinion between now and September and to who? How does that happen? I mentioned before Regenerate America, but all of the the big greens, the large environmental NGOs, whether that's the Nature Conservancy, they would all be engaged in shaping a farm bill that's better for the climate, and they would have legislative campaigns, petitions, so on and so forth. I know Regenerate America has a petition that you can sign online, so they would try to activate sort of their supporters to carry more weight in how they might be able to influence the legislation. So, And of course, there's the state level as well. I know Pennsylvania is supporting specialty crops, supporting organic, because we're not a big commodity production state. So we're one of the largest states with an agricultural economy that has enormous contribution from small farmers. So we're really a great example of what small farming could look like throughout the country at, at some level. And so, yeah, each state also would advocate. But, yeah, depending on your angle into it, if it's social justice or more from the standpoint of the environment, I would look for organizations that are credible, that are really specialized in shaping some of the smaller components of the farm bill, I think realistically that's where positive change is most likely to happen. When I was doing some research for our interview today, I came across something that says Pennsylvania has its own farm bill, and part of it is PA Preferred Organic, a PA farm bill initiative to grow market opportunities for Pennsylvania farmers and keep PA a national leader in organic production. I would think that you fall into that. Yeah, I'm a member of PA Preferred. Essentially, each state has their own legislation to support farmers, and that often is just their implementation of the National Farm Bill. So the National Farm Bill would allow states to play a variety of roles. I, for example, applied this past year to the state of Pennsylvania to refund some of my organic certification costs. And funny enough, I was able to request that sort of a rebate from either the USDA directly or from the state. So it's really quite complicated how everybody comes together. And as a farmer, often it's confusing kind of who to work with. But there's state equivalents to the Farm Bill that then allow state agencies to implement programs supported by the Farm Bill. So absolutely. And, you know, PA Preferred is an attempt to promote small producers in grocery stores. So PA Preferred is a label that small farmers can uh, apply to put on their product that differentiated as a legitimate PA-produced product. Because a lot of farmers markets, a lot of stores, it's very opaque where the actual product was produced. You could be at a farmer's market here selling peaches from Georgia. They're set up to avoid that. But if you just look at what appears to be a farm market on the side of the road, you have no idea where that's come from. And even in grocery stores, it can be very confusing what's coming from where. So PA Preferred was designed to be a brand that a farm like mine or all of our local producers, we could apply that would then allow us to say, hey, we're a legitimate PA farmer. I put it on my products for a while and then dropped it because I didn't think it was relevant. I wasn't selling in markets where there was likely to be confusion over whether my product was from PA or not. And it was just cluttering out my packaging. And I've got an organic label on there. I've got other stuff going on. So, you know, I didn't want to add another thing on there. So I dropped that. But it's an example of a program that, at least at face value, is trying to support PA producers. 
That was Brett Havig of Two Creek Farm in Lakewood, Pennsylvania, speaking to Farm and Country's Rosie Starr. Remember to listen to Farm and Country every Saturday morning at 10 or on demand at our website, wjffradio.org. We'll take a break, and when we come back, family members and caregivers often play a large role in helping and supporting the millions of people in the U.S. who experience mental health conditions each year. When a friend or family member develops some mental health conditions, it's important to know they're not alone. Next, we speak to Joanna Van Tyne from the local Pennsylvania chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness with a seminar focused on those family members, which is happening Wednesday. We'll learn more right after this break. This is Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill supporters include Sullivan Catskills Visitors Association, SullivanCatskills.com, Catskill Brewery. Brewing ales, lagers, and mixed fermentation beers in a LEED Gold certified building, plus a food truck and beer garden at exit 96 off Route 17 in Livingston Manor. CatskillBrewery.com. And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. Sullivan County has two warming centers that are open to all every night this winter. The Liberty Shelter is located at the United Methodist Church on North Main Street. And the Monticello Shelter is located at St. John's Episcopal Church on St. John Street. These shelters are open for anyone from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. every night through Saturday, April 15th. More information at SullivanNY.us. And keep listening for winter weather updates on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Catskill. I'm Tim Bruno. If one person is struggling with mental illness, everyone in the family is struggling. Families need support, and NAMI of Northeast Pennsylvania offers support for those who have loved ones with mental health conditions. They have a seminar Wednesday at the Wayne County Public Library in Honesdale for family members to gain insight from the challenges and successes of others facing similar experiences. NAMI is a nonprofit grassroots self-help support and advocacy organization of consumers, families, and friends who uh, we'll work with people who are experiencing mental illnesses. And Joanna Van Tyne is the NAMI Northeast Region, Pennsylvania Community Engagement and Volunteer Coordinator. She joins us this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Tim. And, you know, we said in the introduction, if, if one person is struggling, then everybody is struggling. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how this um, one person or more in the, fa- in the family or friend uh, can really impact everyone? We call it the ripple effect of mental illness, you know. Uh, When someone has a mental illness, it it affects, you know, not just their everyday life, but also um, the the families as well. And there's a lot of challenges that we struggle with ourselves as family members to try to help them. And you're talking at the seminar on Wednesday at 3 at the Wayne County Public Library in Honesdale about some of the strategies to, you know, improve communication with, with folks and how to build a stronger relationship. One of those is um, don't buy into stigma. What do you mean by that? Well, exactly with false accusations are made about people with mental illness, for instance, that they're violent. You know, 60% of them are more than likely the victim of violence than to be the perpetrator. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other things that, you know, they always associate drugs, uh, substance abuse is always uh, linked with mental illness. That's not always the case. Some people don't even use drugs. So, um, you know, we have to eliminate that stigma and eliminate uh, the other stigmas that go along with it, too, that, you know, if once you're... Um, diagnosed with a mental illness, you'll always have a mental illness, and you can't thrive, that's totally negative because there are there that thrive with their mental illness as long as they're on the right medication and they're on to a therapist, they can do very well. So all those, we have to eliminate all the negative uh, things that are associated with mental illness because it's also a medical condition. It's just not all in your head. Mental illness is physical illness. It is a medical condition. And it's important to separate the illness from the person uh, and understand some of this, I guess, confusing behavior. I guess it's frustrating for some folks who may not understand it, who may think that the behavior is conscious and deliberate. No, it's not. And you're right. You know, they are not. And that's one of the things I teach in the class 
and also in the seminar, you are not your mental illness. Your loved one is not their mental illness. With, like I said, the right medication and the proper therapy, they can strive and, and, and thrive and do very well for themselves. So we shouldn't classify them by their mental illness. And, you know, what are some of the other things that you're trying to uh, show folks in the class? I think, you know, just knowing that you're not... Oops, we've uh, lost we lost Joanna there for a second. We'll take a quick break. We'll get her back on the line. You're listening to Radio Chatsko. This week on the Retro Cocktail Hour, we've got the exotic sounds of Don Tiki, the Waitiki 7, and Les Baxter, plus the wild percussion of Dick Shorty. I'm Daryl Brogdon. Hope you'll join me where the music's always shaken, not stirred. The Retro Cocktail Hour. Wednesday night at 7, here on Radio Catskill. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, independent grassroots global news. Our reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. People speaking for themselves, providing unique and sometimes provocative perspectives on global events. Democracy Now!, weekdays at noon, right here on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. Uh, we've got Joanna Van Tine back on the line from NAMI of Northeast Pennsylvania. We're talking about uh, a support uh, seminar that's coming up Wednesday at the Wayne County Public Library in Honesdale. Uh, folks can gain insight from uh, the challenges and successes of others facing uh, living with a loved one who has a mental health condition. Uh, Joanna, are you back? Yes, I am. As you said, I didn't move. I'm like, I know what happened. The gremlins are out in the phone line. So thanks for coming back. And again, you know, getting support from other people is really important to, you know, take these steps uh, for maintaining a healthy relationship with someone who's living with a mental illness. Yes, and, definitely. Yeah. And so what are some of the things that, um, you know, folks can do? Uh, by hearing others in a support group uh, to help strengthen the connections within their own family? Well, when you go to a support group, or if, even if you come to this family and friends seminar, you'll notice that when you come in, the commonality is there. People can, There's that connection from the people who could relate to your experiences, you know, uh, first and foremost. Um, we all understand, like what we're all going through and, and, and the challenges that we face. So we all have the same similar situations. And, and so- uh, support groups, a wonderful place for group wisdom too, because what the things that you can gain aside from friendship is, you know, uh, group wisdom. And, and support and it, for, for yourself and for someone who has a mental health condition makes a big difference. And, uh, how, how do you balance showing support with caring for your own health and encouraging others to be responsible for their own actions? You cut out. I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Please? Well, how do you, how do you balance that? It's, it's difficult to balance uh, showing the support for someone who's, you know, dealing with a mental health condition. Uh, but you, you're trying to understand it if you're, you're living with that person. And then you're also just trying to encourage everyone to be responsible for their own actions. I mean, can you yes. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we do teach in the class or even in the seminar because uh, Family and Friends is a seminar, 90 Minutes, which is an overview of our family-to-family class, which is an eight-week class. Um, we do start with letting people understand, teaching people how to understand the diagnosis, the treatment, the recovery, communication skills. Um, communication skills are really big, and how, how to strategize communicating with that person is very important. We do talk about self-care because you have to learn how to take care of yourself, too, because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not good to the other person um, that you're trying to help. Um, we do, you know, explain how to prepare for a crisis situation and some strategies to help them with that, and then we provide them with a lot of resources. So um, it, it works both ways. It helps the individual who is struggling with the mental illness as well as the family member or friend that's dealing with them. Mm. That's how it balances out. And, and the reality is, is that we can only really control our own actions and, and you know, support is, is not control. Um, how, how do you, you know, make these suggestions and offer input to someone who um, may not want to choose treatment op- 
options that would be helpful. It's very frustrating, and you're right. You can only control you and what you do, but the more you educate yourself on, you know, the diagnosis and the illness and the resources that are out there, hopefully the better you can help that individual who's struggling. You know, you can't force someone to take medication. You can't force them to go to therapy. But if you just keep supporting them with everything and anything that you know and have become educated with, you can at least keep pushing that onto them and see what happens from there. Giving them that support is tremendous. Letting them know that you, they are no longer alone helps them tremendously as well. And we're talking about the seminar that you're uh, hosting at Wayne County Public Library in Honesdale Wednesday from 3 to 5. But you mentioned also there's a, a six-week education program for uh, parents and other care- caregivers um, that's coming up uh, April 2nd. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, so NAMI Basics is for um, any parent who has a child 22 years or younger um, that um, they suspect may be struggling with a mental health issue or having behavioral issues or maybe having a IEP, or individual education plan at school. Um, it's to help parents and guide parents down that route to uh, start recognizing those signs and symptoms, how to advocate for their child while they're still in school, um, go to the doctor's office and ask the proper questions. That's NAMI basics that we're teaching April 2nd through May 7th, direct. That's a six-week course. But the NAMI family-to-family course, which is uh, a piggyback, I call it, to family and friends, which I'm doing on Wednesday at the library, that's an eight-week course. So if anyone likes the family and friends seminar on Wednesday, we're teaching the NAMI family-to-family eight-week class, which is more in-depth. Uh, starting tomorrow night, believe it or not, uh, via Zoom, virtually. And where can folks get more information about that and then also for the the seminar on Wednesday? You can register by calling our office at 570-342-1047 or go to naminepa.org and We may have lost you. Send you back the materials. Okay. We we had a little break there again. I think we're our our line is getting a little uh, finicky, so we might let you go now. Uh, Joanna Van Tyne is the NAMI Northeast Region, Pennsylvania Community Engagement and Volunteer Coordinator. Seminar at the Wayne County Public Library in Honesdale is Wednesday. Uh, and you can get more information at, at the website uh, NAMI, N-E-P-A.org. Joanna, thank you so much okay. for joining us today. Thank you, Tim. Okay. Once again, thank you. Bye-bye. We'll take a break, and when we come back, a local economic perspective from James B. Huntington with WorkShift Live. This is Radio Chatskill. Last year, over 100,000 people died from drug overdoses driven by fentanyl, and the fastest-growing group is under 19. Fentanyl is the number one cause of overdose in Sullivan County. Whether you're a parent or an educator, you can have the right conversation now to potentially save a kid's life. Protect kids from the dangers of fentanyl. More information and resources at naturalhigh.org. Paid for by Catholic Charities of Orange, Sullivan, and Ulster. I'm Matt Hurtado. Join me on a journey where pixels meet melodies and controllers become conductors. This is Virtual Soundscapes, the show that transports you to the sonic realms of video game magic. In this journey, we'll uncover the hidden treasures of video game soundtracks from the classics to modern day and speak with industry veterans. Join me every Thursday night at 10 p.m. only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. It's Monday, and every Monday we check in with local economist, author, Mr. Economy, James B. Huntington with WorkShift Live, and he's joining us now. Good morning. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, listeners. All right, uh, let's jump right in. Uh, The Consumer Price uh, Index, uh, there were some numbers out last week. What happened? Yes, well, they were not as favorable as a lot of people had hoped for. It turned out to be up 3.1% from a year earlier. 
that is the overall thing. That means really we're not getting down to anything like 2% quite yet. It was still down from December, but after giving us the core version, stripping out food and fuel prices, it went up 3.9% because food didn't go much of anywhere and fuel prices were down. So on that basis, that's the highest in eight months. Hmm. Still hardly atrocious, but it shows us that we're not heading, we're not really getting to the 2% that people had hoped for. And what are some of the economic and financial reports that are coming out this week to keep an eye on? Okay, we have a bunch of ones, mostly smaller ones, but we have on the question of our companies spending money, we get a Commerce Department data release telling us what consumers or, or what companies, rather, are buying recently, except for aircraft and defense-related ones. This comes out tomorrow. House prices in the U.S. question is whether they're dropping. There's going to be a standard and poor release of December home prices coming out also tomorrow. Then on consumer confidence, we have something coming out yet again tomorrow telling us how happy people who are spending money, people in the economy are right now with where we are. There's another inflation release coming out on Thursday, and this one is called the Personal Consumption Expenditures. And then we have something on U.S. manufacturing, which has been creeping down for a remarkably long time. But on Friday, the Institute for Supply Management is coming out with something telling us about February fact or February factory activity. All right, coming. So we'll have a lot of things to look at. Yep, and uh, coming up, there's uh, the Working Pike Job Fair. What uh, is that all about in Pike County? Okay, yes, that is hmm, something that is being described as a large event for Pike County anyway. This is a job fair. It's on April 9th, actually, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's at the Best Western Inn at Hunt's Landing. As of now, there are 70 employers from across Pennsylvania and New Jersey and New York around our area. That's just a little beyond Matamoras on US-6. There's no charge for people who are looking for jobs. No RSVP is necessary. They can still take more employers, and they may well find them. But, yes, it seems like it's mm, sizing up to be an unusually big event, 70 employers is already a great deal for this sort of thing. So if you're looking for anything, mark April 9th. It's the Tuesday. It's the day after the eclipse. Good timing. <laughs> uh, so, yes, on your calendar and show up. It's uh, Working Pike is a group dedicated to building a stronger community through a government, community, and faith-based organizations, they say, according to their press release. And they're also uh, looking for other employers to join that job fair uh, that uh, is happening, as uh, James mentioned, uh, coming up April 9th. There's more information uh, about uh, that at pikepa.org backslash workforce. Uh, now, James, uh, if someone is uh, looking for a job, but they may already have a job, um, how, how can you kind of go about that without maybe tipping off your employer? <laughs> well, would you have time to rush over there at lunch? It covers the whole lunch hour. Anyway, you can get out a little early, or if you're nearby to, if you're near Port Jervis or Matamoros, it could well be worth your time to see if you can do that. Yeah, and um, you also mentioned uh, that there's some uh, more women looking for freelance and gig jobs in our economy right now. What's that all about? Yes, it seems to be that this is, for some reason, this is particular to women. They're saying that 
they are not happy in a lot of places dealing with their colleagues for one reason or another. We have 23% of men saying that a good thing about gig jobs is they don't have to deal with their co-workers, but an amazing 77% of women are saying that. So there's a real trend here. There's something something going on, but there may be more and more. It's avoiding their... This article uses the term the old boys network and saying that it leaves women at a disadvantage on promotions and raises in male-dominated environments. So, yes, this is this was really a stunning split in the statistics between men and women, but there may be more people, especially women, who are looking for these gig jobs, not just treating them as a fallback or what they do when they lose their job, but perhaps trying to find them. Uh, that's according to a survey from a company called Jit Jat Joe, which is a workforce man- management solution uh, platform. All right, let's talk about uh, the numbers. It looks like uh, the stock market still edging toward record uh, categories, record highs. Uh, What were the numbers uh, last week and how did they change? Yes, yes. Well, over the past two weeks is what I have here. Gold is at 20.32 an ounce. That's up $12. Not doing very much, but hanging on. Silver at 22.66 is down 20 cents an ounce. It's really lagging. It's almost 90 to 1, the ratio between silver and gold, which is really, it's been unsustainably high over the past several decades. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, 39,132 as of very early this morning. That's up 460 over the past two weeks. The NASDAQ, 15,997. That's virtually the same, up six points. These reversed because the last time period I had, the NASDAQ had all the gain and the Dow didn't do much of anything. So it's the other way around, but you add those things up, they're all gains. So we are getting closer and flirting and exceeding now and again the all-time records here. Oil, West Texas Intermediate, 7603, down 12 cents. We're seeing, we saw some increases at the pump recently, but this is a little bit, getting to be a little bit lower, so hoping for low 70s or lower there. Bitcoin, 50,974, up about 3,000, still surging. It's up a great, great deal over the last several weeks and months and such. British pound, 1.2682, down 60, or up 65 hundredths. There are more concerns about the U.S. dollar and what's happening with U.S. interest rates and such that that is gaining back. The euro did almost the same thing, 1.0845, up 64 hundredths. And the Japanese 100 yen coin dropped a penny to 66 cents, still dragging not much good happening in Japan right now. So we have, otherwise we have real booms right now for stocks and crypto continuing and we have no idea when they will end we'll keep an eye on it james b huntington will keep an eye on it uh, i forgot it's been two weeks though thanks for uh, reminding me of the, getting all that data over uh, the last uh, holiday and uh, you'll be back next monday with more james b huntington local economist author joins us every monday with workshift live thank you so much thank you tim thank you listeners All right, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, there's a new exhibit opening this Saturday at Catskill Art Space. Culture reporter Valerie Manzi will have a preview of one of the exhibits from one of the artists right after this break. This is Radio Catskill. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio, how the great physicist Richard Feynman recovered after helping to build the atomic bomb. He thinks there's no point in building anything. Everything is going to blow up. And how he started a new life out west. The Caltech, he was a hero right up to the end. Part two of the curious, brilliant, vanishing Mr. Feynman. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Tuesday at 1 p.m. on Radio Catskill.
You're listening to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Catskill Art Space has announced an exhibition of new work from three artists, Hovey Brock, Daniela Dooling, and Valerie Haggerty. That's opening Saturday, March 2nd. Dan- D- Daniela Dooling's exhibition is called The Canary Project and encases each bird in the piece in resin casts of natural crystal formations or found rocks. She spoke to culture reporter Valerie Manzi about it. Good morning, Daniela, and welcome to Radio Chatskill. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes. So you will be part of an exhibit of works by three artists at the Catskill Art Society opening on March 2nd. And am I correct in saying that your exhibit it will include the Canary Project and Fire Nests? Yes. So the Canary Project, that sounds really interesting in that they're canaries inside a synthetic geological object. Could you explain? Yes. So I'm using real taxidermied canaries, and the canaries are embedded through a layering process of synthetic resin. And the the objects that they're embedded in are either casts of rock or crystals, large crystals that I make a, a mold from. And then, so they're actual natural objects that I, I make the mold. Then I, I cast layers of resin into the mold, eventually placing the canary in the center. So it looks as if it's suspended. It's like a, a fossilized, artificial fossil. Are you making any kind of a statement about the environment and plastics and toxicity? I would say yes. Um, I started this project in early 2020. I um, have, uh, I already had a few taxidermied birds, including one canary. And I was looking at this canary and thinking about the idea of the phrase, uh, the canary in the coal mine, and how, and also how that relates to this term called climate canary. So um, most people are familiar with the term canary in a coal mine, but some actually aren't at this point. But so uh, as I kind of dug into this idea, I was, you know, researching how coal miners would bring down canaries into the mines um, as basically uh, a way of of measuring if there were toxic gases in in the mine. And so this was, and this practice was went up till the late '50s before they had instruments that could measure the toxicity. And because bar- birds are more sensitive to toxic chemicals than humans are, they would pass out and sometimes die. However, I it doesn't for me stop there. So um, in part, while I was making the first of these birds in 2020, of course, the pandemic was raging on. And so I saw that I saw the birds as kind of rep- representative as being kind of messengers or harbingers that a, a, a some kind of a catastrophic event is coming. And in addition, in addition to that, birds on a whole are one of the largest species of animals that are going extinct. So. For me, the kind of preserving them and embalming them is a way to kind of honor these birds that may no longer be with us in a post-anthropocentric world. What I find interesting is that, you know, the environmental impact of plastics and the fact that you chose plastic to trap the canaries because they, I am sure, are very sensitive to all of the toxins in our environment, plastics being one of them. That is a little bit of a, I would say, a contradiction in the work. The resin that I use, it has the lowest toxicity that I can find. 
um, it was a resin that was designed by artists so that it's not a highly toxic resin. For the purposes of, of the project, I wanted to mimic the kind of effects that, that amber has, which is a kind of natural resin in, in my work. So, What do you have them suspended with? I use medical hardware, medical and scientific hardware, to display them. So there are laboratory clamps that go around the, the objects and hold them into place. So they're sort of precariously balanced within these laboratory clamps. And then I use other types of um, hardware that are all sourced from science labs and um, medical labs as a way of kind of pushing this sort of scientific, it's almost like they're a specimen that we're, you might be looking at in the future. So it's important to me that those, they're all seen using that, that labware, which is, it's a kind of labware that I've used for a long time in my work. Yes, I, I thought it was um, a, a great stroke of genius to use that. It puts it in a perspective that resonates. And before we go, can you briefly tell us about uh, fire nests, which you'll also be displaying? Um, yes, of course. Um, so I, I started, my first fire nest was made in response to California's wildfire season of 2022. Yes. And um, I was, uh, I have a family and friends in California and was just reading about these catastrophic fires um, and thinking about, you know, what happens to, obviously there's threat to to, to to property, um, that's kind of what we hear in the news, but um, ob- obviously animal habitats are also affected. And I had a collection of birds' nests. My, my studio is a little bit like a um, nature lab, actually. And so I tried to, I, I made a, p- a piece that I envisioned would be what would happen if a, fire, if a nest was burned and somehow almost uh, fossilized. Right? So in these works, which I've now made about 12 of, I have you know, greatly impacted by the Canadian fires from last summer uh, by the, the smoke that filled our area. And each one of the nests uh, is named after an actual fire that either affected me or affected someone I know, or sometimes it's a stranger. I've been asking people on social media if there was a fire that affected them, if they would like to have a nest named after that fire. So um, a recent one is named after someone I don't know, but someone who lost their home in Arizona in the tunnel fire. Um, I'll be showing these for the first time in Livingston Manor. Thank you, Daniela. Well, thank you so much, Valerie. I really... uh... That was uh, cultural reporter Valerie Manzi speaking to artist Daniela Dooling, who will be part of an exhibition of new work at Catskill Art Space opening Saturday, March 2nd. More information at catskillartspace.org. And that's all for this edition of Radio Catskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from JeffWorks Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York, a newly renovated pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com. And from The Cooperage Project, thecooperageproject.org. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week on Latino USA, an intimate conversation with Salvadoran author Javier Zamora on what he thinks the role of a writer in today's world should be. You know, if there's anything that my parents taught me is that writers should be at the vanguard of change. That's this week on Latino USA. Thursday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, streaming live at WJFFradio.org. 
You're listening to Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR. Today's forecast, sunshine and a few afternoon clouds, a high near 50. Tonight, a low of 33. Tomorrow, partly cloudy skies during the morning hours, giving way to occasional showers in the afternoon and a high near 51. On Point is next. It's 11 o'clock.